sermon is going to begin a three-part series that will surround the life of the newly elected deacon and disciple by the name of Stephen. This is a, a unique opportunity for us in Scripture to do a character sketch of an individual in the Bible. And I'm kind of leery of doing character sketches such as the life of David or the life of an apostle or a New Testament because our inclination is to take that character out of its context. So this gives us ample reason and opportunity to look at the life of Stephen in the context of how Stephen pointed to Jesus and how Stephen helps us as a body of believers point to Jesus as well. Not much is told of Stephen, the newly elected deacon, other than what is mentioned in verse 5 and then afterwards in his death. Verse 5 says, He is a man that is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So over the next few weeks together, we are going to look at a series of sermons uh, upon Stephen. We'll examine his sermon. We'll examine the events that surround his testimony. And we will entitle this the saga of Stephen's, not the Stephen's. That's a mistypo there. <laughs> the saga of Stephen's, although we might have our own saga, but today it's about the the deacon, newly elected deacon uh, in chapter 6 of Acts, the saga of Stephen, part 1, a man full of the Holy Spirit or a man full of the Spirit. I'll ask you in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord, the most precious word of God, the infallible, inerrant word of God. Let's stand together and let's travel through God's word together in unison. Hopefully that our standing in adoration matches what is in our heart. And that we're not looking around and saying, well, I need to stand because my neighbor's standing. We're standing because the Word of God is important. Acts 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia... And Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they gazed at him. And all who sat in the council saw his face. And it was like the face of an angel. Father, we ask you, you bless these few words that we have read this morning. We pray that as we read it, we will be attentive to how your Holy Spirit is moving in our own heart. If 
Father, we don't have to look at our neighbors and wonder what our neighbors are thinking, God, but you're speaking to each of us today as individual worshipers here in the name of Jesus and, and of course, collectively as your church. So we pray, God, that we would hear you today. We pray, God, that we would, that we would act upon what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week we examined the calling of what is the first known deacons. The first ever deacons in Scripture are called. This is a calling together of an assembly of people, six, to aid in ministry. And it is not a new, not a new concept. And as they called these brothers, they are seven men of good repute, seven men who have good standing in the community, seven people who know the word of God and they know of their conviction in Jesus. They know that they are saved. And so there's qualifications for these seven deacons that are listed in Acts chapter 6 in those beginning verses. And they were called to aid in serving tables. Really what deacon means and servant is a servant of tables, a waiter of tables to be able to serve as an extension of the ministry that God was already building. And so it is to aid in the ministry. And by the way, this assembly is not a new concept. In fact, we find it in the Old Testament. We find it under Moses, as Moses called it a group of, called a group of elders. As, and we find it as early in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 7. We find it in Exodus, calling of elders together to help aid in what God was doing uh, uh, momentarily in the ministry. Now, there is a distinction between elders and deacons as well as there should be, as deacons are simply servants. Before our purposes for today, a bit of recap on the role of a deacon, just one simple statement I will make on that. The role of a deacon is a person who serves Jesus in the context of the local church, allowing the elders and pastors to preach the gospel without restraint. In other words, this is an extension of that ministry. It is an extension of that ministry. Now, in the lot of these seven, there is one called the name Stephen, who is our examination for the next few weeks in front of us. He is one of those called deacons, and we are told that he is a man, according to the Scripture. He is a man who is full of faith and of the Spirit of God. And historically, God is going to use the death of Stephen. He is going to use his death as a catalyst for the next phase in spreading the gospel. Acts chapter 1, we got the framework already. That we are going to, um, we're going to, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, the other, other ends of the earth. And Stephen's death is going to be a catalyst to springboard into the next phase of God's great plan of redemption. His death will scatter the church to Samaria and to Judea and to portions of of the world, and we can find how this picks up in the very beginning of, of James when James addresses the dispersed church. In other words, the diaspora, the, the dispersed church because of persecution. It said of Stephen that he is full of the Holy Spirit, which does not mean 
that there is a constant repouring or reapplying the Holy Spirit in Stephen's life or anybody else's. There is not a constant repouring or a re-administering of the Holy Spirit in one's life. So this is where we would take some time to kind of clear up the muddy waters before we continue on a theology or doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? When do we receive the Holy Spirit? Do we receive re the Holy Spirit uh, at one time in our life? Or do, as we believers, do we keep receiving the Holy Spirit? Is it a one and done? Or is it something that is continuous in our life? So let's take some time to clear up the muddy waters before we continue. Now, when a person is saved, when a person is regenerate, or when they are saved, when they are quickened by the Spirit of God, they receive the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. So we can agree on that. You will not receive another portion or any more of the Spirit of God in your life as a follower of Jesus. What you get of the Holy Spirit when you are born again is what you get. The same Holy Spirit that abided in Stephen is the same Holy Spirit that you receive as well. And so why is it that some churches say receive the Holy Spirit today and those type of things? Well, it's a matter of doctrinal differences. You will not receive another portion or an, uh, of, uh, or an overpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, now here's where we must be very careful in articulating what we believe of the Holy Spirit. What is highlighted in your life, what is amplified in your life of the Holy Spirit is your obedience and influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Some people will translate that as, I had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on me today. It is simply that you are, the Holy Spirit as you are being obedient is highlighted in your life and it is amplified through your obedience. Hence we see Stephen standing in obedience. In other words, Stephen's life was driven by his faith and his obedience to the Holy Spirit. He did not receive a second administering of the Holy Spirit. And the same goes for you and I. When we are born again, we have the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need to beg him, send us another dose of your Holy Spirit. We just simply need to be obedient to him. Obedient to him. Now, last week I shared with you an illustration of D.L. Moody probably one of the greatest evangelists that we know um, in contemporary, we, we would say contemporary Christianity or modern evangelism. And the example that I shared with you was one of servitude and how serving Jesus can be contagious. Serving Jesus can be contagious. Now, D.L. Moody said of the filling of the Holy Spirit, he said, I firmly believe, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition that everything that is contrary to God's law, that the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our heart. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and the world, there is no room for the Holy Spirit. So we must, listen carefully, we must be emptied before we can be filled. Now what does that mean? What that means is once the Lord gives you a new heart, once he saves you, once he transforms you, once, he, once, once you are saved, so to speak, once you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that indwells your heart and drives your life. So let's look at Stephen a little closer and what obstacles he faced. 
is a man full of the Holy Spirit of God. And the obstacles that Stephen faced, my question going into this will be, will we be able to relate? Will we be able to relate? And the answer is certainly, most definitely. Because what I find when I began reading in, cha in chapter 6, beginning at verse 8, I began to see this image of the wisdom of the world. And what you will find historically is that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. The greatest thinkers in the world, the geniuses in the world, those folks who are smart and intelligent, even all of their knowledge combined all in one spot is still foolishness to God. It's a reminder both uh, here and also in 1 Corinthians 3.19 that says, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. And so Luke begins his narrative of the deacon Stephen. He says, here's Stephen who is a man full of grace and power. Some of your Bibles might say he is full of faith. The, word, the same word here used for grace is the word that translates for faith. He is full of faith and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Now, right from the start, you'll notice that Stephen's ministry was not just confined to waiting tables. Although he was included in waiting and serving, he began to do great wonders. And he is the first, other than the apostles, to be noted as doing the great works and signs through the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke is drawn to Stephen's demeanor. Luke is drawn to Stephen's demeanor. There's an attractiveness to Stephen. There's an attractiveness to his, his demeanor and his stance, not to mention that Stephen will become what we know as the first martyr for their faith in Jesus. He will become the first Christian uh, martyr. And so there's something attractive. There's something attractive about a person who is sold out to the Lord Jesus and is being used greatly by him. And Luke makes a note of these, of these things. The grace or the faith of God infused him with power and wisdom so that the language expresses he kept on doing great signs or wonders and signs amongst the people. God gave Stephen the power to work great miracles among the people. Now Stephen would not say it is in his power or neither would the apostles that the Lord is granting him the movement by the Holy Spirit to make the gospel known as we'll see next week in, the, in Stephen's speech or his sermon. The power of the gospel was on display through the life of Stephen. Historically speaking, it doesn't take long before the schemes of man, before the schemes of the devil come knocking in opposition. And let this be a warning. If you serve the Lord Jesus long enough, the world comes knocking in opposition. If you serve Christ long enough, at least even in the public square, it doesn't take long for the enemy to come knocking and sometimes even amongst his own people. Sometimes we are in opposition with one another. So the first wave of opposition comes by the way of these people that Luke just simply calls freedmen. Some scholars even support the notion that Saul, later called Paul, was amongst those in Cilicia and that Gamaliel 
the rabbi presided over these hearings. And verse 9 tells us that some of these people were of the synagogue of the freedmen. That is, that's what they are called. They are, and some of are, are Cyrenians and some of Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they rose up and they disputed from Stephen. Now, these are Jews up north, up the northern part, uh, up above Jerusalem, who are pros, um, Jews and proselytes alike from several different countries that I just mentioned. And they had now come to Jerusalem to bring their offerings and to, and to attend the Feast of Pentecost. So uh, they just met in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So it makes sense that all these folks, the Lord was growing his church at a rapid rate. God was growing his church up against Pentecost all the way until these freedmen come in. God was using these men very quickly and opposition rose quickly as well. And the persons mentioned here were they were foreign Jews who had appeared to have a synagogue of them for themselves in Jerusalem and they were accustomed to coming in and to, and to worshiping uh, there in Jerusalem and for the public festivals as well and Pentecost being one of those. And these were those who at a time they were imprisoned by Rome and now they are freed men, hence the name. These were dispersed Jews from the northern part of Africa and some that is called the Asian dispersion, the Asian dispersed and they were Jewish free men set free by Roman captives. They were Roman captives set free and they were expelled from Rome as early church historian Josephus and Tacitus wrote of all of these folks mentioned that they were captives set free and exiled. Now they are coming back to Jerusalem. The Cyrenians were natives of Jerusalem. The Alexandrians were those in Egypt. A province in Asia Minor is Cilicia, which is the capital of Cyrus. All that to say that they had suffered great for their faith in Yahweh to believe in the one true God and to fear Him and worship Him. There was a bit of suffering that happened amongst these freed men. They were imprisoned and they were exiled because of their faith in the one true God. And their main dispute with Stephen was his view of Jesus as Messiah. And when you get your eyes off the truth of who Jesus is, it distorts your view of who God is too. And we see this happen. The word here used for disputing doesn't mean angrily, an anger connotation. It seems to be fair and an orderly dispute, which is synonymous of rabbinic debate. If you'll notice, the uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, when they addressed Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, you'll notice that they would call him good teacher. They would call him good teacher. So the beginning of this rabbinic debate, this disputing, started off in a respectable dialogue. A respectable dialogue. And, and by the way, those are two words today that do not go together in our culture. Long are the days of respectable dialogue when I can sit down with a person who has different even theological, political views and have a respectable dialogue. It seems somewhere along the way somebody is going to shout one word or two words on repetition and, and ad nauseum and you cannot have respectable dialogue these days. And so it started in a respectable way but turned south as we, will, as we will ultimately see. And by the way, Jesus never said that 
standing for him and proclaiming his word and living out our faith was going to be easy. Do you find it anywhere in scripture where it said living out our faith in Jesus is going to be easy? I, I can't find it in scripture. Will it be fulfilling? Yes. Will we have joy in serving the Lord even in opposition? Yes. Easy? No. Now these men are struck with amazement at the words and the actions of the apostle Peter. What transpires is strikingly close to the persecution of Jesus. I want you to take some notes as we work through this in the next three sermons together how, how close they are to the persecution of our Lord Jesus. The religious leaders, they were astounded at his teaching. And he was killed. And as he was killed, as we'll see in Acts chapter 7 verse 60, Stephen says something very familiar at the end of this chapter. He says, in other words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. In verse 60, And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he died. So we can say that Stephen is indeed full of the Holy Spirit of God. Now how did these people respond to Stephen? Verse 10 tells us they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They did not know how to respond. For as much godly wisdom that they thought that they had as a counsel, they were truly ignorant of the eternal truths of God found in Christ Jesus the Lord. It was Greek scholar R.T. Robertson who described this transaction as such. Robinson said, Stephen knocked them down, Saul included, as fast as they got up. Stephen was like a battery charged and in action, which simply meant that Stephen kept on speaking in wisdom and the opposition did not know how to address the situation. Again, their greatest knowledge of the word, their knowledge was folly to the wisdom of God. So far, Stephen's story is, is inspiring one to us, is encouraging for us. It reminds us of this, that even in turmoil, even in adversity, even in the company of the enemy, that the Lord will empower his people to stand in boldness. In fact, as Jesus said, that think not what you'll say when that moment comes, that he will give us the words to say in persecution. The Lord empowers his people to stand in boldness. And church history is full and rich with occasions where people stood in boldness and the Lord used their words greatly. And Stephen being the first amongst many in history. Stephen's message was that Jesus is Messiah. He is Savior and that is still the message the world needs. That message hasn't changed. See, we look at Stephen's saga and we think, what a mighty man of God he was. What, how God used him. And we can be used in the kingdom. We can be used mightily in the kingdom of God. And maybe it is that we don't surround ourselves in the company of the enemy much often. We can be used mightily in the kingdom we just simply have to be obedient to the Lord. The same power, the same power in Stephen is in you and I as followers of, of Jesus. We can speak truth and love and boldness with a burning conviction. Everybody else does it around us with burning conviction. 
People protest on the t- all the time. I think that sometimes people have signs made up to protest and they don't even know what they're going to put on them that week. Why can't we stand with boldness and burning conviction? Herbert Jackson, I don't know if you've ever heard the name of Herbert Jackson. He was a, a missionary and in a seminary missions class one day, uh, Jackson, um, he told how as he is a new missionary, he was assigned a car. He was assigned a car that he would use to go from place to place as, as a missionary. And he would say that there was a problem with this particular car, but it would, because it would not start unless it was pushed. Okay, have you ever had to pop a clutch on a car? Okay. So some of us don't know that reference. As you're a little younger, you might not know what that actually, to pop a clutch on a car and get that car started. But this was Herbert Jackson's problem. And so he devised a plan. He went to the schools and he got some children, he got some people to come, got them out of class. Anytime he needed that car started, he would come get them out of class and they would help push that car so he could pop the clutch and get it running. And by the way, you probably couldn't do that today because of all the security issues. But he got all he got these children out of the class and they would and he would and he would have his car parked on a hill before he ever turned the ignition off so that the next day they could come and help him push that car. He could pop the clutch and go on his and go on his way. That was his that was his plans. He would make his rounds and as he would come back, he would park it up on a hill ready for the next day. And he used this, what he considered to be an ingenious procedure for over, for over two years in his ministry. Well, he began to have some issues with his health, which forced him uh, and his family to have to leave this particular assignment as, as missionary. A new missionary came to that station, and uh, Herbert was giving him the rounds and kind of explaining to him how he got from point A to point B, and he was kind of proud about uh, his device plan of getting the children. Hey, he may have used it as a mission opportunity. Maybe he did. But he was, he was, he was proud of this thing. And the, uh, this missionary came and was beginning to, to look at the car as Herbert was beginning to tell him and explain this arrangement. The new man looked under the hood. And before the explanation was even complete, the new missionary inju- in, interrupted Dr. Herbert Jackson. He said, well, Brother Jackson, I believe that your only trouble here is this loose cable. He gave the cable a twist, stepped into the car, pushed the switch, the ignition switch, and to Jackson's amazement, the car engine roared to life. It was just a simple tightening of the cable, and two years of his life, they have been pushing his car around down a hill. For two years, we might consider this to be needless Trouble, but in that even a lesson, it had become routine. The power was there all the time. Only a loose connection is what kept Jackson from putting that power to work. See, when we are obedient to God, the Holy Spirit will move in our lives. As we read God's word and as we learn God's word, as God speaks through His word and His Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't know how. All of the, I don't know all uh, uh, how the Holy Spirit works and the ins and outs. I know it's a mystery somehow. I just know that the Holy Spirit works when we are obedient to Him. I can't explain the mystery of how the Holy Spirit moves and works. I just know that there's some times in my life that I can point back and I can say, that was the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know how it all works. 
But I do know there's this otherworldly mystery that I cannot explain. But I do know this. Boldness in Jesus is not a far out there ethereal concept. It is not far out there. It is, it is a reality. I want you to listen before we move on to my second point for the day. Listen very carefully. Today there exist churches that are filled with events. They are filled with scheduled events. We're having a carnival here. We're having this here. We're having that, but is devoid of power. There is preaching with emotion and what we call pathos and ethos. There's passion and emotion in the preaching, but there lacks, there lacks exhortation and there lacks conviction. And my friends, a church that is without conviction, a church without exhortation, is just a country club. We want exhortation. I want to be convicted. I want you to be convicted. Could it be that we lack the peace, the purpose, direction, only because we are trying to erect programs and survive on our own strength. And I think of Herbert Jackson in this, failing to connect the wire that ignites the power of God in our life, the Holy Spirit, and just being obedient to, to Him. Secondly, the world will exhaust its resources to oppose the gospel. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So here's the scheme. They secretly accumulated people that they could manipulate with money. We've heard the verse, you know, that, that money is the root of all sorts of evil. And this is a demonstration of that. It's very reminiscent of how the Lord Jesus uh, is tried in Matthew 26, 59 through 60, that they come by manipulation and lied and brought up false witness. And then even after the resurrection in Matthew uh, 28, verses 12 through 15, listen, Let's just say that the apostles came and stole the body at, 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 at night. And so from the text it appears that even they're trying to coach these men as to what to, as to, what to say. Hey, it worked, it worked with, their, with their leader Jesus. It worked with him. Yeah, let's, let's use it again. Let's use it again. And it goes to demonstrate over and again that the enemy will go to far lengths to stifle the truth. Of the gospel. He will distort the truth, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Has God really said? He will attempt you to doubt God's word, and He'll even use people against you. See, they fought, they hired these false witnesses, and in today's time, we might say this looks something like the mob. What was the lie? And we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. I want, you, I want you to think very deeply about that last phrase, against Moses and against God. Here's where their heart is at. And their distorted eyes and their view of who God is, the preaching of Jesus is the completion of the law and atonement, and they saw it as an attempt to tear down the things that Moses had given to them historically. And that was the reason to suspect that they were doing away with the Mosaic Law, which is actually a misrepresentation 
of what the apostles were really teaching. Instead of seeing this as a fulfillment, they saw it as a preaching to the abolishing of the moral, civil, and ceremonial law of God. But all of those things are found in Jesus and complete in Christ. It is not an abolishing or doing away. It is a completion through the Lord Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross, and through His resurrection. But there is something more that is going on here. And if we are not careful, if we are not astute, we will miss it. They have placed Moses on the same level as God in reference to the blasphemy. The purpose of this charge is to stimulate the prejudices of people in Jewish rites and their freedoms. The Pharisees come along, as we see in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they, they came upon Stephen, they seized him, and they brought him before the council. They arrested him and brought him before the, the council. And if you remember, one of the premier themes in the book of Acts is unity. One of the premier theme book, uh, uh, themes in the book of Acts is on unity. They were together in the upper room, one mind, one heart. They were together in the upper room. They were in one place, in one mind, in one accord. If you take the antithesis of the apostles' motives, you can capture this scene. You can picture this scene. Because this verb that you see in the text, stirred up, implies to stir up as a mass. They moved them together. Enemies of the gospel will go to great lengths to pull people together for an anti-gospel cause. That's why we have a top 50 countries in the world who are antagonistic to the gospel because the enemy will do all he can to pull the resources together to make Jesus not so alluring, to make your life look like it's a, a sham or a shame, to smear your name and testimony for Jesus. And so they did that. They set up a false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And so this should sound familiar to you. Again, here was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Caiaphas did the same thing to the Lord Jesus with their continual blasphemy against the Lord and their disbelief. And if you recall, last week I made a point about Judaism and early Christianity, that the apostles did not see a sharp delineation between Judaism and the way or following Jesus, but was a fulfillment. And I mentioned that earlier. And so it was the Sanhedrin, the council, the freedmen, who set up this amongst the people. And it would be the disciples' best interest to, uh, to do them no good whatsoever, to set up a false witness. Why would they do that? Going all the way back to the resurrection, why would the apostles gather together and say, listen, we know that Jesus is really not alive. Let's band together and make up a lie, and then we're going to die for it. They're going to kill us a few and any time we can recant, they're going to kill us in a few years, but let's hold on to this lie. It is no good for them to set up a false witness. More than likely, they use the same words of Jesus against Stephen. What are the words they say? Verse 14. 
But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This is the classic scheme of the enemy. Number one, to dispute and misrepresent the word of the Lord. Has God really said this? Did God really say that this is a sin? So let's misreinterpret the word. Classic scheme of the enemy, and it happens today. Did God really say that that was a sin? Now we know that Jesus was alluding to his death and resurrection, and, and the fact remains that he is more than just a simple day of atonement. Christ is the atonement. And by the way, Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple. We know that Jesus was talking about the temple would fall in three days, would be rebuilt. He's talking about the resurrection. But Jesus did give an accurate prediction that would come to pass in 70 AD when Rome reacted in one last revolt. This started as early as 67 AD as Rome began to march upon Jerusalem, surrounded the city, cut off all of its resources, and marched into the city. And in 70 AD, the words that Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 6, come to pass. He said, For as for these things that you see, the Lord will come when there will, be, uh, the, when, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another, and that will be not thrown down. And so Jesus predicted it. And since the temple is no more, there would be no reason to bring sacrifice, no reason for the Sanhedrin, no reason for the Sadducees, no reason for the Pharisees, no reason for the scribes. It all come tumbling down through the mouth of Jesus. Now here is Stephen. He did not bend, bow, or fold. He did not recant. This may be an indication, again, that Stephen was a man driven and motivated by the Holy Spirit's prompting. And they looked at him. And all who sat in the council saw his face, that it shined like an angel. In the words of poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, he said, God's glory smote him on the face. I love the way that John Wesley puts this as he describes the scene. Wesley said, covered with supernatural luster. They reckoned that his preaching of Jesus to be the Christ was destroying Moses and the law, and God bears witness. That's not the case. With the same glory as he did with Moses, he now gives Stephen as his face shined like an angel. Maybe this is the Lord saying, this is my servant. As Moses was my servant, so is Stephen my servant in this case. Now they say that he spoke against Moses, but here is the face of Stephen resembling the biblical account of Moses' sheen when he comes down from Mount Sinai. Now if you remember, Gamaliel instructed the apostles saying, if it be God's will, then it will prosper. If not, it will be defeated. Let it go. If it be of God, it will prosper. So what is the issue? Okay, why the proceedings? This is a great example of how the Lord will reveal the person's true colors over time. First, it reminds us that this is, that this is his gospel. This is, this is his gospel and, and, and not ours. And we proclaim for his glory and not ours. Secondly, it shows two faces. One that shown the glory of Christ, the glory of God. And the second shown with the stain of human depravity and sin. 
So here Stephen stands, an example of standing tall and true in Jesus. And here's our challenge in closing. And let me say this with a fair bit of accuracy because there is none in here who is holier than the next. All of us in here today are colored with a shade of hypocrisy. Every one of us in our lives. We are sometimes colored with a shade of hypocrisy. Some are shaded lightly, while others are deeply tainted. Stephen's message to us is an example of being mature enough in Jesus to mean what you say and to say what you mean and then to live out your faith no matter, no matter the consequences, no matter the enemy. See, the church has been painted with strokes of hypocrisy for far too long. In fact, if you invite somebody to church today who is really not a person who attends church or a house of worship, you might get something like, well, that church is full of hypocrites. And some of us might laughingly say, well, come on, we'll, we'll invite one more to join us. Or somebody might say, well, uh, there's anywhere you go, there's a form of hypocrisy, no matter where you go. And as I mentioned earlier on in this sermon in Acts, there's some degree where we need to own that. We need to own that and work past it. The church has been painted with these strokes of hypocrisy for far too long. When we live out our faith in Jesus, the world will not understand it completely. And this doesn't mean that followers of Jesus are better. It doesn't mean that we're better than the next person. It doesn't mean that we're holier than thou. It just means that Jesus is better than any system offered by the world. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In closing... I want you to remember this. The enemy will do all that he can to paint you as a hypocrite and to devalue your witness, to make it to where you speak of Jesus and people will say, well, you're not living out your faith very well. He will do all he can to paint you as a hypocrite. The question is, here's the question. Will you do all that you can to paint a better picture of Jesus or allow the world to paint a picture of you as a hypocrite. This is a valuable lesson in, that we learned from Stephen and we'll continue on next week. We'll pick up with the second part of this sermon. I'll just simply ask you to be challenged by God's word today and we shall respond appropriately, being led by the Holy Spirit of God. Stephen was a man that was driven by the Holy Spirit, a man full of the Holy Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit because of his obedience. The question is, are you in obedience to God?